Welcome to The Brighter Side of Education. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Hassler, here to enlighten and brighten the classrooms in America through focused conversation on important topics in education. In each episode, I discuss problems we as teachers and parents are facing and what people are doing in their communities to fix it. What are the variables and how can we duplicate it to maximize student outcomes? In this episode, I discuss art and education. How is student learning experience and outcome increased with art integrated instruction? According to the National Arts Education Status Report of 2019, art class interest and participation decrease in K-12 schools by almost 40% from the elementary to the high school levels. 86% of elementary schools participate in art classes, compared to 69% of middle school students, which then drops to 47% of high school students. Now, this coincides with the decrease in art class requirements for high schools and the competing advanced level courses needed to get accepted into colleges and earn scholarships. In this way, arts education is often misunderstood as a fun break, despite research proving its ability to increase cognition in the core content subject areas and improve students' socio-emotional well-being. President Kennedy even stated, as a great democratic society, we have a special responsibility to the arts, for art is the great democrat, calling forth creative genius from every sector of society. Joining me today to discuss the importance of art and education is Dr. Andrea Kantrowitz. She is an artist, researcher, and educator who has lectured and given workshops internationally on art and cognition. She is the director of the art education program at the State University of New York at New Paltz and the author of Drawing Thought, published in 2022, which is an investigation of drawing, cognition, and creativity that integrates text and hand-drawn images. Welcome to the show, Andrea. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity. Can you talk about your background and how you became interested in art and cognition? Well, it's hard to remember when it began. I think it's something that I've always been interested in, what kinds of thinking we do when we make art and how artists' ways of thinking could be useful uh, across disciplines and really for everyone, not just those who identify, think of themselves as artists. I think that art does unlock and allow us to see our own thinking in unique ways. And we can play with our ideas and uncover ideas in very open-ended ways that I think it's hard to do when we're using words alone. Uh, So I think that's one of the things that really makes art and drawing special. I've always made art since I was a little kid, and I've always been really interested in, in thinking And when I was in college, I created my own major in art and cognition, looking at the relationship across disciplines through courses in sociology, anthropology, psychology, and philosophy of science, evolution, all that stuff, and seeing how it all connected. Um, And also just kept painting. So my main art practice is painting and drawing. Nice. I've seen some of your work on your website. Beautiful. And and so you do showings and stuff like that, galleries. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have I actively exhibit my work as well as think about all this other stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you're very active in the research end of art and education. You co-organized 10 years of international drawing and cognition research symposia and workshops. And your study, Framing Student Success, Connecting Rigorous Visual Arts, Math and Literacy Learning, demonstrated the impact of an integrated art curriculum for students growing up in poverty. Can you talk about your study and the key findings? 
Sure. It was uh, federally funded by the uh, Federal Department of Education um, Art and Education Model uh, Documentation and Dissemination Project with partnering studio and a school private nonprofit organization with New York City Department of Education. And it was five years of research with 800 students in third to fifth grade in the Bronx and Harlem, a randomized control, so like gold standard study um, with an integrated curriculum. What really, we were really looking at what specific cognitive skills can art teach children that children need. And it was really targeted for impact. So I want to, I want to take a step back with it. Uh, The previous year, my son was a Teach for America teacher on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. And we went to visit him and he was complaining actually, because his students were so below grade level, but they had an hour of art a day. And he said, what a waste when they can't read or do math. So I was really interested in this AEMDD study, um, the study in New York City, to see if we targeted instruction in art, if we could have more of an impact. And we found that we could. So we paired schools that had with a high poverty population with um, the school actually that I was primarily in was a failing school in New York City that was on the verge of being closed because the children were not at grade level. And we worked with the math and literacy coaches to develop specific curriculum that targeted the things that those children really needed. And what we found is that they scored better on the state tests. It's a rough measure, but it's something. And we found even more of an impact in math than, than literacy, which was not what was predicted. Like we think of art as being about self-expression and sort of emotional stuff, but really um, we saw more of a difference in their ability to do math. And I think there's some really interesting reasons for this. We never uh, were able to really dial down to the item analysis to figure out why, but um, it's my best guess that it had to do with spatial reasoning, the kind of spatial reasoning that is cultivated through art making. And that is so important for success across disciplines, particularly in STEM fields. So that's something that's very exciting was about that project. And also the collaboration, I think, um, the you know, forming a team between the classroom teachers, the math and literacy coaches and the and the art educators was was really key. You gave an example when we were talking earlier with the tissue paper and fractions. Right. So um, Bob Siegler at at Carnegie Mellon has done some really interesting research on what are some key benchmarks that we look for in terms of the development of mathematical thinking. And um, it turns out that if children don't get fractions by grade five, it's really it's really a problem for them. It's really a, a strong predictor later on in terms of their ability in math. So we developed this really fun game using tissue paper. So it was was transparent to get across the idea of equivalent fractions. So the idea that, you know, two quarters make one half, you could actually see it. You could do it physically through different pieces of, of colored tissue paper and see it. And it was incredibly effective. Kids loved it. I remember we had we developed this whole bingo game, and the kids were so excited that the assistant principal came in, and he was afraid something was going on in the classroom because you know he heard so much excitement. I think we underestimate children often. We don't give them the tools they need, and and then we think it's their fault and not ours. 
And I remember that in a 12 to 1 to 1 special ed classroom, the teacher said, oh, you know, my students will never get fractions. It's just learning about equivalent fractions is just not something they can do. But we did it. We played the game and I would walk into the classroom when it wasn't art time and see the children taking out the game pieces that we made and playing with them. And what a big difference it is between um, non-intentional art when it comes to take out a pack of crayons and, and just draw something that comes to your mind for an art class versus intentionally pairing a lesson plan to meet certain standards, whether it's an, an art standard or it's a math standard. But being able to have that intentionality is really important um, when it comes to the end result and whether or not the students are going to be um, increasing their knowledge base. One of my old art classes that my sons were in, uh, they really had no art instruction. It was more of this kind of reminds me of what your son was thinking like, oh, it's kind of this waste of time in a sense, because it was like, here's a piece of paper, here's a pack of crayons. Um, and it was a space, a time that they were saying this was art class versus when you have an art teacher that is trained in how to develop skills within uh, students and then be able to do that partnering like you're talking about that cross-curricular to help boost those um, other subject areas to say, you know, how can we work together collaboratively to bring art intentionally into the classroom in a way that would help improve their learning outcomes. So. Yeah, your comment just brings two stories to mind. One is, um, you know, we always think of art in the service of other disciplines. And with the same um, project in fifth grade, we did a project with insects. They made up their own imaginary insects. But as part of that, we used geometry. And we said, is this an acute angle or is this an obtuse angle? You know, is this an equilateral triangle? You know, it's like just really using the vocabulary that they had learned through geometry and applying it to art. So I think the cross fertilization goes in both directions. That is very Um, true. Yeah. And I think, yeah, sometimes we just think that we add in art, like, um, just to make it fun, rather than seeing that art actually has its own learning that is important and valuable for students. What is embodied cognition? And how can we use it to increase the educational experience for students? So I love that question, because we 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 treat our children as if they're just brains and and um dis and disembodied and i think that that has gotten even more so in the digital age when we're they're so glued to screens where children aren't even learning how to write by hand they just mm-hmm. learn how to type right away but as humans we've evolved to think with our whole bodies in interaction with the environment in which we find ourselves And we have these marvelous hands that are like so complex and are so much more than our thumbs, right? And there's some, you know, work that shows that the complexity of our hands evolved along with the complexity of our brains. Often uh, there's a field of gesture studies. I'll just try to be really brief about this. That shows that when there's a mismatch between gesture and speech, that the gesture exhibits a higher 
level of understanding than the speech. The gesture is in front of the speech. So this is um, Susan Golden Meadow with Piaget's Conservation of Volume Task, which I know a lot of educators will be familiar with. We think and feel our way through with our hands. In as we learn new things, sometimes we're, we kind of indicate it through our gesture when we can't put it into words. And if you ask someone a really difficult question, for example, and you make them sit on their hands, they're going to have a harder time answering it. And, and it's really interesting. They've also, there's, there's a lot of this work is super interesting because teachers who gesture and maybe again, targeted gestures in intentional ways, right. um, their children learn better. And when you allow children to gesture as they're speaking or even guide them to certain kinds of gestures, they'll learn better. So this is related to the idea of embodied cognition that we think with our whole bodies. And also when we make art, we use our hands. And we can sometimes put things down in lines and marks that we can't yet put into words. Which leads me to drawing as a tool for thought. One of your dyslexic participants in one of your professional development courses said, for me, drawing has been a kind of special magic superpower. She used drawing when her words failed and encourages her students to use drawing as a tool. So how can drawing be used as a tool for thought? I think... Exactly. Following up on your last question is allowing us to access embodied cognition, things that we know and understand but cannot yet put into words. So I think that that's sort of the magic superpower, that it helps to open our eyes and minds and hearts to see more, imagine and invent more and feel more connected by bringing to light perceptions and ideas that otherwise would stay below the surface of our conscious minds because we can't always express what we know and understand in words. I think another sort of magic superpower of drawing is that, in particular, is that we use uncertainty. I think as humans, we always want to be certain of things, and we tend to be overconfident in our beliefs and ideas about things. And with drawing, the, actually the fuzziness of our thoughts can actually be seen as an advantage, an opportunity. We can become more comfortable with, with not knowing and allowing things to sort of bubble to the surface that we might otherwise ignore. So there's something, phenomenon called pareidolia, which is how, as humans, we tend to see meaning in random phenomena, like, you know, seeing Jesus in the piece of toast kind of thing. Oh, we just okay, see, yeah. we just, or, or, you know, castles in the clouds or whatever it is, we tend to see things that aren't there. And um, when we draw, we can actually make use of that and to stimulate our imagination and come up with new ideas just um, on the basis of like looking at the fuzziness and, and drawing something out of that. Now, last fall, you published the book, Drawing Thought. How Drawing Helps Us Observe, Discover, and Invent. And in it, you wrote about a top-down and bottom-up approach. Can you explain what you mean by this? So top-down is what we ordinarily think of as conscious thought. Planning, judgment, strategizing, analyzing. And that's very often the common understanding of what constitutes thought. But there's so much more that goes on in our in our minds. So the bottom-up are perceptual processes, habits and routines, kind of what we act on spontaneously, sudden epiphanies, or even 
sometimes negatively intrusive memories also come from the bottom up. All kinds of biases, innate and learned biases, um, such as confirmation bias, always looking in the world for things that confirm what we think rather than being open to contradictory information, that's bottom up. The bias that we overestimate our own intelligence and underestimate the intelligence of others. That's something that we do as humans. Really important to become aware of as a teacher that we, that we underestimate the intelligence of our students sometimes. That's all bottom up. And I think through drawing and other forms of art making, we can become more conscious, more aware, and more in control of all that bottom up stuff, which m might otherwise operate you know, out of our view. <laughs> we can play with these ideas. And perceptions, we can sort them. We can keep what's useful and and correct what what is not useful. How would you suggest you like? What would that look like? Um, the top down versus the bottom up. Like, if I had a piece of paper and I'm, I don't know, I'm I'm thinking about drawing something. Is it is it within that process that I have something planned and that now I'm allowing? innovation and creativity to come into what it is that I'm doing? Um, and is that way the bottom up? Or is it a plan? Yeah, I, think I, guess. Being too sad. I think people get frustrated with drawing because they think it's a simple act of putting something that they see or imagine on paper and um, hitting the target. Um, and we never hit the target. No. <laughs> I can be <laughs> drawing and painting since I was a little kid and I, and I don't hit the target, but that's not even that interesting. It's sort of the journey that you go on to figure things out because inevitably what you think you see or what you think in your head, you have in your head is not completely accurate or doesn't make complete sense. And once you start to put it down on paper, you can see where it doesn't make sense, where things don't connect and, mm. um, and figure it out. You know, for example, in science class, it's been shown that, that students, uh, visualizations really help them understand systems better than verbal descriptions because they can see it and they can see where something doesn't connect, which is you can't see with words in that same way. You have a, a YouTube video thinking about drawing and you said drawing helps us not to escape, but instead engage deeply in the present moment. Where do you believe drawing can lead us? These are such good questions. <laughs> ordered them perfectly. So exactly what I just said, that you can draw as you draw, it takes you on a journey. And you begin to see things that you didn't even know were there. And this, you know, I've been drawing for 50 years or more, probably 60 years since I was a real little kid. And I... I'm always amazed that there's so much more as soon as I start to draw than I thought when I when I was just looking. So I think if you go in expecting to be surprised and welcoming shifting ideas or overturned assumptions, that's really exciting. And you'll find that you can, uh, if you draw what you see, what you hear, what you imagine, that you know less about it than you think you do, but at the same time, more than you might realize. So um, there's this very famous drawing teacher, Simone Nicolaides, who wrote a book, The Natural Way of Drawing, way back, you know, and he was teaching in the 1930s. He said what he noticed about teaching drawing is that 
students will be surprised that there's much more in their drawings than they even knew that they saw. You know, that there's just wow. details and that they, they weren't even aware that they were observing, but it's in their drawings. So draw. And then I think the other magical thing about where drawing can take you is, is after you've been sitting drawing and maybe it's just like the flowers on your tabletop or some idea that you have in your head or you just start to doodle even, go for a walk and notice the world around you. And if you've been really engaged, you'll, you might notice that it seems more vivid. The mundane details of your life seem more magical. It just kind of wakes you up to that sense of being present in the moment. That's beautiful. Sometimes I do that where like, you know, I have this idea in my head and I'll try to put that out onto a canvas. And it's frustrating because this idea of what I want it to be uh, is not what it is. And then, like you're saying, you go out, and what I've noticed is walking, even I live near the beach, we'll sit at sunset, and I'll look at the sky and go, those are amazing colors. How would I blend that? Look at that cloud. Look at the depth in that. It looks like I could, like it's a snowball, like I could crunch it. And the other ones are like, you could you could tell the different levels of the stratospheres and stuff, and you're saying, wow, that one's so much higher, and that the one below is moving, and how would I how would I depict that? What colors would I use? What what medium would I use? And that's, a, you know, that's amazing. So I look at it and I'm always saying like to myself, I love the color combination or the textures or the shape of something and wonder how is it that someone could actually duplicate that beyond my skill immensely. But I'm always in awe of the nature and the natural world around us and how others have the ability to take that and actually represent that or duplicate it in different ways that could just be magnificent. With my students in the classroom, they would come at something with different lenses. So when, you know, if they ever saw something like um, a nude statue, and here I was in second grade and it was like, oh oh my gosh, it's a butt, Um, you know, and, and then I would say, can you imagine the talent it took to make that butt? I mean, that, that looks real. Or how how would you go about creating something in marble? How would you go about um, taking clay, you know? And so when you start to look at the skill and the mastery behind those things and saying, come to it with the lens of an artist, even science, come come to it with the lens of a scientist. And when you even combine those two to think mm-hmm. anatomically, how how is that accurate? Or even right. botanicals that they would draw, I would take them out in the garden and they would draw botanicals. We would go to the Selby Gardens and be able to watercolor those. But you'd, you'd look at the shapes and after being in art for a while and just dabbling, how much more I appreciate the natural world. So great advice. Yeah. And I think that the connection there between art and science is one that's too often ignored or, or thought of in a superficial way. But I think there's a really deep connection there between developing your powers of close observation and structure and form and, and understanding the natural world and appreciating it. So I love that you just made that connection. So, And I think that material engagement, right, with all kinds of materials is being human. That's what makes us human, I think, among many other things. But that's, that's, that's a really important thing to, to offer to our students. 
Excellent. Before we end the conversation, can you leave teachers and parents with a recommendation regarding art and cognition? So, yeah, make things. Draw together, make sculptures with cardboard boxes that are out in the recycling bin and other materials. Um, Look at your, think about what your grandmothers and grandfathers made, the quilts, um, maybe cooking, making birthday cakes and Halloween costumes from scratch rather than just going to the store and experience that human connection. You can cultivate through the physical engagement with your body and mind and heart all together. So that's my recommendation. I think that we've seen, I just want to say one more thing, which is we've seen over the years that I was teaching in K-12, hand strength decrease because we don't make those things. And when I ask my future art teachers, like, does anybody in your family make quilts or, you know, uh, carpentry or whatever, they usually say, yes, there's somebody there. Maybe they weren't an artist in, you know, with a capital A, but they made stuff. And I think in the general population, those kinds of crafts have really decreased. And when I talk to a general ed population, they don't have, they haven't had those experiences. So let's bring them back and enrich our children's lives with those kinds of, of knowledge and skills. Thank you. That's excellent. I'm going to jump right on that. I love to do all those little things and I think that it's just interesting. It makes life interesting and kind of fun and makes you proud of some things that you've created. So Andrea, thank you so much for joining me today to discuss art and education and the importance it plays in cognition and mindfulness. Well, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. How would someone be able to um, learn more about you and uh, where would they go? Um, well, you can go to my website, andreacantrowitz.com. Um, pick up my book. You can; It's available on Amazon. You can order from your local bookstore. It might even be there, Drawing Thought. And within that, there's all kinds of ideas and also exercises, different activities to try. So, um, yeah, and reach out to me, um, andreacantrowitz at gmail.com. The call to action is to emphasize arts education and the creative mind as key components to equalize opportunities in society. If you have a story about working in your schools that you'd like to share, you can email me at drlisarichardsonhassler at gmail.com or visit my website at www.drlisarhassler.com and send me a message. If you like this podcast, subscribe and tell a friend. The more people that know, the bigger impact it will have. If you find value to the content in this podcast, consider becoming a supporter by clicking on the supporter link in the show notes. It is the mission of this podcast to shine light on the good in education so that it spreads, affecting positive change. So let's keep working together to find solutions that focus on our children's success. Mm-hmm.